Chapter Twelve of Lancashire by Francis Archibald Bruton. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Two famous abbeys. The district now known as Lancashire did not take a lead in the foundation of religious houses, nor was the number of the monasteries in the county ever large. But omitting for the moment some minor foundations not without interest even now, they are named in an earlier chapter, there were two settlements of the Cistercian order whose remains rank high among those of the whole country today. It was in the year 1098 that the Cistercian revival, which really owed its origin to an Englishman, took place, and less than thirty years later an abbey was founded at Furness by Stephen of Blois, but this foundation was an offshoot in the first place of the Benedictine order, and the monks migrated to the beautiful valley of the deadly nightshade from Tulketh on the Ribble, near Preston. It was not till about 1150 that, somewhat reluctantly, these monks of Furness acquiesced in the transference to the more austere Cistercian order. The building of their church had already made some progress, but the plans were at once revised so as to conform to Cistercian rules. More than a 130 years after this, the monks of Stanlaw in Cheshire, who, as we have seen in our first chapter, were greatly inconvenienced by the floods of the Mersey, culminating in a great disaster in 1279, were transferred to their new home at Whalley, with the consent of Henry de Lacy, one of their greatest benefactors, on the condition, among others, that the new abbey should bear the name Locus Benedictus de Whalley. The remains of these two Cistercian houses rank among the chief glories of Lancashire today. Round the first still lingers the romance of the rule of the abbots of the broad hinterland, which we now call Furness. Round the second, a famous Lancashire novelist has woven the greatest of his Lancashire stories. Perhaps there are few ruins that grow upon the visitor more, as he abandons himself to their influence, than those of Furness Abbey. At first sight they are disappointing. You can obtain no distant view, as you can at Tinton. The buildings have no skyline, as they have at Fountains. The hotel and the railway station oppress you, and you cannot shake them off. You almost sympathised with the tourist who regretted that the abbey had not been built further from them. The lack of a tower gives the structure momentarily a heavy appearance. Two correctives may be suggested. The first is to come to the place with a mind full of the details of its romantic history. The other is to bury yourself immediately in the minutiae of architectural detail, till gradually the beauty of the structure forces itself upon you. The modern surroundings retire into the background, and the past returns. Both Furness and Whalley conform strictly to the standard plan of a Cistercian abbey, but whereas the ruins at Furness have been most exhaustively examined and planned, those at Whalley still await such treatment, though their present owner, who is fully alive to their interest and value, has already and quite recently obtained important results by excavation. The buildings at Furness were soon completed, and underwent many alterations. At Whalley, on the other hand, it was not till just a century before the dissolution that the last touch was put to the realisation of the original plan. The beautiful green vales in which the buildings of these two abbeys nestled respectively may not at first have been so inviting as they are now, and the early settlers may have had reason sometimes to remember that abbey buildings were planned in the first instance for defence as well as for beauty. More than once Furness was swept from end to end by a Scotch invasion, and on the occasion when the invader was Robert Bruce, 
the church and conventual buildings were probably only saved from disaster by the tact and resource of the abbot who went out to meet the intruder and afterwards entertained him royally at the abbey the coucher books of both abbeys have been preserved and those who wish to go into the details of their story will find admirable summaries of the contents of the books in the accounts written respectively by professor tate and his pupil professor powick some further information is appearing in the publications of the chetham society while the beautiful plan of furness left us by sir william hope showing the remains of different periods in different colours is a monument in itself the story of the fate of the furness coucher book is interesting when the dissolution came in fifteen thirty seven two charcelleries and other muniments were trussed up in three packs and dispatched to cromwell in london on the backs of three mules the expense of transit being thirty-five shillings and fourpence three years later the abbey lands were annexed to the duchy of lancaster and the coucher books were transferred to the office of the duchy here they were consulted among others by leland in eighteen sixty eight queen victoria as duchess of lancaster presented them to the public record office we have references to nearly forty abbots of furness to less than half that number of wally both abbeys were surrendered in the year fifteen thirty seven the district of furness as we have seen was at the foundation of the abbey a no-man's land and over this the abbot ruled with all the power of a feudal lord while to the scots he figured as a border baron the details of the courts held at dalton and elsewhere have not come down to us but we may gather some idea of what their proceedings were like from the cases that accumulated during the period of the dissolution and had to be disposed of afterwards when in fifteen thirty nine the court was taken into the king's hands we know that the abbot possessed such instruments of punishment as were in use at the period a gallows and even a cooking-stool and one case of hanging actually on record is that of a dog that was addicted to worrying sheep the abbot in his palmy days had the full support of the crown and was an important person on the occasion of a royal progress in the words of dean milman the superior once a man bowed to the earth with humility careworn pale emaciated wearing a coarse habit bound with a cord with naked feet had become an abbot on his curveting palfrey in rich attire with his silver cross before him travelling to take his place amid the lordliest of the realm his very isolation in this case only confirmed his power and this power was felt far beyond the limits of furness the abbey had its granges in lancashire below the sands and in yorkshire it held estates in the isle of man indeed at one time the abbot was actually warden of that island his ships rode in the harbours on the coast he had rights of wreckage the castle on foodry island was his fortress he collected turf and salt from the shores of morecambe bay he had fishing boats on coniston water on the loon and duddon and other streams and on windermere his vaccaries or cattle farms were scattered among the fells the smoke arose from his smithies or bloomeries by lake and stream wherever wood was at hand for smelting he hunted and hawked on the fells of high furness and he had his gallows on more than one site to vindicate the law indeed the strong arm was necessary on more than one occasion graphic details of some of these turmoils of medieval times have come down to us 
we read for example of one of the abbot's enemies who rode round the abbey night and day plotting to kill him on another occasion the monks themselves raise the hue and cry against some miscreant and pursue him to ulverston where in spite of bars and bolts the door is forced in a grand assault and the offender carried off to jail with such exciting scenes in prospect and retrospect with so many industries and undertakings claiming their attention perhaps we need not wonder that few or no records of scholarship or research stand to the credit of these monks as we stand among the ruins to-day and gradually reconstruct the beautiful buildings trying to catch the busy hum of the life there five centuries ago the glimpses we obtain are ideally picturesque here in this lovely green dell was located the hub of the little world of lancashire beyond the sands in the middle ages here all questions were discussed as reports flowed in from high and low furnace from distant granges from the world at large here were assigned to the brothers of the order their various tasks for it was the monks who had to undertake the several duties of supervising agriculture and managing sheep farms not only in furness but also on the green slopes of wernside and ingleborough and elsewhere pasturing cattle and garnering grain collecting fish felling woods smelting iron and supplying markets this college of gentlemen as mr collingwood puts it represented those who had taken upon their shoulders at that time the white man's burden for a long while they bore it worthily then they forgot considering the shocking state of the roads in those days we need not be surprised to find that when the path was knee-deep in mud profunda molities are the words in the old record permission was given to the monks as a special privilege to turn aside and trespass on the adjoining land the coucher book tells us too how barons of lancashire and yorkshire repeatedly gave protection or succour to the flocks of the abbey as they were moved from pasture to pasture one amusing case is on record in which a benefactor offered to bestow so many perches of land upon the abbey but no measuring rod was at hand with a keen sense of humour the benefactor agreed to accept for the purpose the longest-footed man the monks could find you picture the scene that followed so a gleam of humour and even merriment breaks upon their self-imposed task of bearing the white man's burden all these activities eventually brought great wealth to the abbey and it dispensed a royal hospitality many details show us how the poor of the district would benefit and vice versa how they would suffer when such benefits were withdrawn there was for example a secular infirmary at the abbey for poor men one donor in twelve twenty one promised ten cartloads of turf a year to warm the poor who were entertained at the gate benefactors we may add aspired to be buried within the abbey precincts just as welsh pilgrims in early times cherished the hope that their bones might lie at last on bardsea island and there share the sleep of the twenty thousand pure-souled saints of innis enley the beauteous isle of mary and the rome of britain as we stand among the ruins of the offices of the abbey to-day we may remember what was said about its liberality by men who giving evidence in the reign of elizabeth carried their thoughts back to the life of the monastery as it was in its palmiest days we see the tenants coming with twenty or thirty horses to take away the weekly barrels of beer sixty in all each containing ten gallons a dozen loaves going with each barrel another cavalcade of carts of the same number came to fetch away manure for the tenants fields 
Every tenant having a plough could send two persons to dine one day a week. Children and labourers could go to the abbey for meat and drink, the children remaining for school, and food was also served out at the abbey gates. The end of all this came with the pilgrimage of grace, which was supported by three thousand dalesmen from Furness alone, and by some of the monks. Roger Peel, the last abbot, temporised. It is really painful to read of his cringing to Cromwell, and the mean way in which Cromwell received his bribes. Finally, he fled for refuge to the Earl of Derby at Latham House. He was brought to Wally, where he agreed to surrender the abbey, he himself receiving, as the reward of his temporising, the living of Dalton, where he continued to toady to the vicar-general. So, in the summer of 1537, the monks, much complaining, were dismissed with a subsidy, and there is no evidence that they ever joined other houses. For the moment their calling was at a discount. The lead from the roof was melted down, the church was dismantled, the cattle were sold, and to this day we may find, remaining fixed in the walls of the abbot's chapel, the iron rings to which farmers used to tether their cows after the dissolution. Passing by the great gateway, which is partly obscured by the hotel buildings, we enter the ruins today by the fine recessed Norman arch of the north transept of the abbey church, and are at once face to face with the massive piers of the crossing, which belonged to the earliest transitional work of the first building. From these sprung later the very low tower which was characteristic of the Cistercian abbeys. This tower would afterwards be raised, but the western tower at the end of the nave belongs to the beginning of the 16th century. It shows that additions were being made so late as this in the life of the abbey. But though its beautiful piers give just that element of height that is wanting elsewhere at Furness, it is not really certain that it was ever completed. Facing us is the flight of steps by which the monks descended from their dormitory to the early morning services. Let us hope that they did so with cheerful hearts on summer mornings. At any rate, when God's jocund little fowls were making melody in the green veil of the nightshade. But on dark winter mornings the church would be chilly. Then let us hope that the statue of St. Christopher, that would probably stand on the bracket at the foot of the stairs, would give them some encouragement. Bonum est nos hic esse, quia homo vivit purius. So ran the inscription composed by Bernard, abbot of Clairvaux, and set up in all Cistercian abbeys. As Wordsworth has rendered it, here man most purely lives, less oft doth fall, more promptly rises, walks with nicer heed, more safely rests, dies happier, is freed earlier from cleansing fires, and gains withal a brighter crown. We will hope that it was so with these monks of Furness, in spite of the fact that their vows involved self-repression, and resolutely turning their faces from much that is implied in all things given us richly to enjoy. The walls of the presbytery where they chanted their services stand today at their full height, the period of this part of the building, as we see it now, being early 15th century, and enough remains of the great east window, which was nearly 50 feet high, to give us an idea of its grandeur while the Sedilia and Piscina on the south side are exquisite examples of the work of their period. Their cornice and pinnacled canopies remove at once the impression of heaviness which marked our first sight of the building, an impression which is to be finally and once and for all dispelled presently when we enter the chapter house. 
the choir or chancel in its widest sense would be separated from the main body of the nave indeed the very word chancel implying grating or lattice would remind us of this and the lay brothers would hear the service from the other side of the screen but why we are often tempted to ask the huge nave of these abbey churches as an extreme example the church at the abbey of cluny is almost two hundred and twenty yards long just as a very striking contrast we may mention here that the nave in the abbey of sawley or sally just across the lancashire border on the ribble in yorkshire is curiously only one-third as long as the presbytery measuring by paces only i made the nave to be forty-five feet long the presbytery one hundred and thirty-five the shortness of the nave at sawley may be due to the poverty of the foundation which might have precluded unnecessary expenditure on building may we explain the great length of the nave in other cases by supposing that these churches were built not so much to be filled by a great congregation as to be a glorious monument to the deity just as temples like the parthenon were raised not as places of assembly at all the arrangement of the transept chapels at furness is exactly the same as that at kirkstall abbey near leeds which is one of the best preserved cistercian houses left to us except that the northernmost of the three chapels of the south transept became the sacristy at furness at kirkstall the sacristy is at the south end of the transept the nave was constructed in the latter half of the twelfth century but only the column bases remain and we get no appearance of a vista the only chance of visualising the church at all seems to be to stand outside in the evening light a little to the north of the ruined west gateway just below the barrow road looking aslant to the north-east from here through the lofty west arch of the crossing we obtain some idea of the fine proportions and then veering to the right we get our first glimpse of what is surely the pièce de résistance at furness the range of deeply recessed beautifully moulded transition arches on the east side of the cloister the central one leading to the chapter house for proper effect these beautiful arches should of course be viewed from a point much further to the south and it is from such a point that they are usually photographed at wally as we shall see the actual position of the chapter house is in some doubt there is no such doubt at furness surely though the vaulting has fallen this is rightly described as one of the most exquisite examples of early english architecture left to us its slender clustered shafts as we have said dispel once for all the idea that the remains at furness have a heavy appearance and leave in the mind not only a pleasant memory but a great regret that we should never see this building in all the delicacy of its first beauty the vaulting of the long range that supported the dormitory of the monks fell long ago though the tall lancet windows through which the sun peeped into their chamber remains while of the solarium and dormitory on the opposite side of the cloister garth which is so pronounced a feature at wally hardly a vestige remains we linger round the ruins of the later infirmary further south the earlier infirmary was afterwards adapted as part of the abbot's lodging and try to picture the beds placed in the window recesses for the aged or infirm monks whose work as foresters sheep farmers iron founders or agriculturists was done and we call to mind a visit we once paid to the religious house at martigny which is the rest monastery for the monks of the saint bernard hospice and the long talk we had with a monk of eighty-three who had served his time at saint bernard and the simplon 
did the novices or the younger brothers at furness come and sit by them and tell them of the world that hummed outside how the flocks fared that dotted the green slopes of wernside and ingleborough how the falcons of the hobbies struck the herons at rusland pool what sport there was with the deer on dale park fells whether an eagle nested on weatherlam what luck there was with the fishing on duddon or windermere how the bloomeries prospered along the lake shores the bloomeries where the smelting was done with wood precursors of the huge furnaces of barrow and ulverston of to-day then a hush seems to pass through the whole community as it is whispered that extreme unction has been administered to some aged brother and that he has passed to where beyond these voices there is peace and as we stand later on the north-east of the church by the perpendicular porch that led to the monk cemetery we seem to see the last rites performed and hear the male voice choir the infirmary chapel now plays the part of museum and among the effigies lying on the floor will be found no doubt the cross-legged knight and stone abbot on which wordsworth gazed nearly a century and a half ago while our horses grazed the smooth green turf within the vale of nightshade and then with a rebound from the shelter and repose and quietness of that sequestered valley our steeds remounted and the summons given with whip and spur we through the chantry flew in uncouth race and left the cross-legged knight and the stone abbot and that single wren which one day sang so sweetly in the nave of the old church at wally part of the abbot's lodging is still occupied at furness though the building is in ruins the remains are substantial and are rightly railed in the block that was added when at the end of the fourteenth century the old infirmary was converted to the abbot's use rested against the steep side of the sandstone cliff unfortunately this change was made after the country was ravaged by robert bruce so we are precluded from picturing the abbot and the scottish king sitting here round the festive board and trying to imagine exactly what turn the conversation took of one thing we may be quite sure that in whatever part of the abbey building that meeting took place and it did actually take place the best brew and the choicest viands the abbey kitchen could produce were at the service of the invader the individual to whom furness abbey fell after it was laid in ruins left the abbot's lodging to share in the general disaster and built himself a manor-house on the site of the great gateway sir richard ashton at wally on the contrary took up his abode in the abbot's lodging and it is this building whose eastern front still bearing its sixteenth-century character and it is still occupied greets us first as we pass along the beautiful bird-haunted avenue which leads to the abbey ruins though we have already from the railway viaduct looked down upon the two gateways so well preserved and that unique feature of the remains the two-storied cellarium and dormitory of the west side of the cloister garth roofed and complete wally abbey does not nestle in quite so secluded a dell as furness but its immediate surroundings are perhaps more varied and beautiful to the south across the calder rises the steep green wooded slope of wally nab and the grounds are varied to-day by lawn and garden shaded by chestnuts and other fine timber the fragment projecting to the south of the abbot's lodging which faces us immediately on arrival and which is probably the remains of the chapel of the old infirmary is one of the most beautiful of the whole range of buildings to our left is the site of the abbey mill which was destroyed more than a century ago the mill stream has recently been culverted 
already we are reminded of harrison ainsworth's romance for his seventh chapter is entitled the abbey mill and it was from the house immediately before us that the abbot was rescued though there seems to be some confusion in the story between the mill race and the river and possibly between the respective banks of the calder ainsworth's biographer has devoted a whole chapter to the lancashire witches and it is interesting to read there of the novelist's keenness and of his periodical visits to wally even when the story was appearing in serial form as the present owner of the abbey has pointed out in his pamphlet on the remains there is little in ainsworth's narrative that is based on fact except the dates and names and such slight evidence as we possess would rather be against ascribing to paslieu the last abbot the character portrayed in the novel while again everything goes to prove that he was executed not at wally as ainsworth represents and indeed tradition tells but at lancaster in the north aisle of wally parish church may be seen paslieu's reputed gravestone but as only the first initial is preserved the identification must remain in doubt the inscription runs fili dei misereri mei much room for thought is afforded by the southwestern portion of the abbot's lodging which though ruined still shows remains of a large room above which are seen the square-headed windows of the long chamber projecting over the mill-stream as the abbot's kitchen with several huge fireplaces and a buttery window communicating with the open these will be a fifteenth-century date west of this group of buildings we find ourselves in a spacious grass court which separated the abbot's house from the cloisters and passing through one of the numerous openings in the east range we reach the cloister garth itself as we stated in speaking of the transitional arches at furness the doorway leading from the cloister to the chapter house flanked here by two pointed windows is one of the most pleasing features of the structure we said there that some doubt had been expressed as to the position of the chapter house few who visit wally abbey however will hesitate to say that as at furness kirkstall and fountains it projected for some distance beyond the dormitory building into the green court already mentioned by standing in various positions we may obtain pretty vistas of arches at this point the corbels that appear in this east range below those supporting the dormitory above appear to suggest that the original intention had been to vault the range vaulting does not appear however on the other side of the garth where the solarium and dormitory are quite complete and roofed the lack of vaulting in that case may be due to the fact that the buildings there are later than the fourteenth century and therefore not being needed for lay brothers who had disappeared for the most part by that time were used mainly for storage i do not know whether the complete preservation of the range on one side of a cloister is peculiar to the ruins at wally but it is certain that the perfect preservation of this block does help more perhaps than anything we have seen elsewhere to a realisation of the original buildings viewed even from the railway viaduct as the train crosses it this range is very striking and one wonders how long such a valuable relic of antiquity will be allowed to serve the purpose of a cow-house and a fodder store no one who visits wally should omit to enter the farmyard of which this building forms one side at the northern end of the building you stand of course in the conventual church itself indeed one of its piers remains abutting from the structure and projecting from the same wall is a corbel of the vaulting of the church the arches and tracery of doors and windows 
are much more perfect on the outer or western side. At Furness we noted the remains of the flight of steps descending from the dormitory to the south transept. Hardly a trace of this is left at Whalley, but the staircases that came down to the cloister at the southern end are both well indicated, and the lavatory in the southern range is exceedingly well preserved. A number of features seem to point to the existence of a covered ambulatory with lean-to roof. Among others is the weather moulding, with corbels below, that runs along just beneath the upper windows of the western range on its inner face, and is of course absent on the outer side. For the details of the church we have, till quite recently, had to rely on the researches and conjectures of Whitaker, and indeed his plan seems to be, in the main, a reproduction of the standard plan of a Cistercian church. But so recently as 1919, Mr. Travis Clegg, the owner of the abbey, has uncovered remains that will lead to a timely revision. The north and south walls of the church, which are four and a half feet thick, are now exposed, as are also the bases of four clustered pillars on the north side and one on the south, while a clustered base aligning with the south wall evidently marks the entrance from the cloister to the church. The floor of the church, which was carried out partly in encaustic tiles, has also been reached. Apparently, we may date the completion of the building to the middle of the 15th century. One other feature revealed by the excavations, and exceedingly well preserved, seems to have its counterpart at Fountains Abbey. This is a hollow space beneath the church floor, underneath what would appear to be the position of the choir seats. In the case of Fountains, Sir William Hope, we believe, assigned this to some acoustic purpose. There is not the same element of romance about the history of Wally Abbey that we seem to detect at Furness. One of the pleas put forward by the monks for their transfer from the dreary mud-flats of the southern side of the Mersey estuary was that Wally lay in the midst of a barren and poverty-stricken district, which would afford them good opportunities for exercising hospitality. The new foundation started with only twenty monks, who were temporarily housed till the abbey should be built. At the outset the monks were precluded from hunting in the forests, as the vicar of Wally had been permitted to do, and there were numerous disputes, sometimes with Sawley Abbey close by, sometimes with reference to the chapel at Clitheroe Castle, sometimes with reference to the living of Wally which they had seized, sometimes with the vicar of Sladeburn about the tithes of Bowland Forest, so that even as early as ten years after the foundation stone of their abbey had been laid, they were seriously contemplating abandoning the site altogether. It is somewhat surprising to learn that among other drawbacks, was the shortage of timber for fuel and for building, and the difficulty of transport of grain and other necessaries. Clearly the new abbey had found an inhospitable home, exchanging the floods of the Mersey for the wilds of the north. One picture at least reminds us of the Furness stories. As the domain of Clitheroe extended across the county border into the forest of Bowland, the abbey claimed tithe of such lands. But when in accordance with this claim, the bursar of Wally was seen driving tithe calves from Bowland towards the abbey. The rector of Sladeburn set a mob to attack him, crying, Kill the monk, slay the monk! Not only, so the story proceeds, was the bursar compelled to return to Wally without the calves, but the tenants were obliged to swear that they would pay no more tithe except to the rector of Sladeburn, and as no other cross was available at the moment, they swore with their fingers on the cross of a groat. 
here was a state of things you imagine what the abbot had to say that same evening about the rector of sladeburn and also what the rector himself may have found time to say about the abbot and all his crew king edward the fourth however to whom the dispute was referred upheld the rights of the abbey handsomely and the rector of sladeburn had reason to repent at leisure of his hasty action through such tribulation had men to pass in those days who took upon themselves to carry the white man's burden in north lancashire and on the borders of yorkshire wally can boast not only a complete west range to its conventual buildings but two well-preserved and beautiful gateways prominent objects as we have seen when viewed from the train as it passes over the railway viaduct the north-western entrance which is twenty-five yards long is of fourteenth-century date and it is supposed that the upper room with its eight three light windows the mullions and tracery of which remain may have served the purpose of the chapel without the walls the north-eastern gateway will be about a century later in date End of chapter twelve